You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Payment Optimization Tricks and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Payway. Okay, I want to welcome everyone to the webinar. Thank you again for joining us today. My name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing lead here at Chargebacks 911. And uh, for those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, we help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen. And then we help merchants refute illegitimate chargebacks once they do happen. Um, after present, also presenting today is Kim Miller, uh, who's the Vice President of Business Development mm-hmm. at Payway. Uh, Kim, do you want to take a moment and just tell us a little bit about what Pay- Payway does? Sure, be glad to. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Payway is a proven payment solution. Uh, we help card not present businesses simplify and accelerate transaction processing. This leads to improved cash flow and significantly lowers the costs associated with accepting online payments. Uh, the reason our solution is special is because we built it specifically for the subscription and recurring revenue market. We started out 35 years ago, uh, processing the payments of some of the industry's biggest publishers. Then the internet came along and people wanted to pay online. So in response, we created the system by which hundreds of newspapers now take payments. Uh, we were a SaaS solution long before there was an acronym for it. Um, and we understood the subscription economy long before it was a hashtag. Um, And we continue to foresee the changes and the evolution happening within the payment space. It's why we ensure all of our customers, um, be it newspapers, digital media, online education, manufacturers, retailers, uh, we allow them to provide frictionless payments to their customers. Um, They enjoy the benefits of lower decline rates, thanks to our account updater, They realize more in level three savings, Uh, they're PCI compliant, and they're protected from fraud. We, as a whole, support credit and debit cards, ACH, and all major digital wallets, including Apple and Google Pay. And we are assessing additional integrations. These integrations are made easier thanks to our API, which is uh, known as PaywayWS. It provides an easy and simple way for programmers to integrate cloud-based recurring payment functionality into their existing sites and systems. Uh, one of the things we at Payway value most about our solution is our approach to customer service. Our customers know we put them first. They know we're a partner that wants to help them succeed with a solution that works best for their business. They rely on us to process their transactions safely and securely. They trust us. Um, And after all, the less time uh, you can spend thinking about payments, that's more time you can spend on your business. That's great. Okay, and um, before I get started, I just wanna go over how the webinar will be structured. Um, The first part of the webinar will include a short presentation from myself and Kim. Um, we're going to do it a little bit different today. Uh, Kim's going to do the lion's share of the presentation. Um, she sent me over her slides, and they were just so good that I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to add, a very, add very much to the conversation. So I'm excited to have her today so that we can um, kind of pick her brain and, and see from uh, Payway's perspective, uh, um, y- you know, what, what she thinks about these topics. 
Um, the, uh, her presentation is going to be fairly visual, so it's important that if possible you close other windows and um, give us your attention. The second part, part of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Um, this portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you just want to kind of listen to that part. Please also feel free to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. We promise to answer any questions submitted, if not live, then by email after the webinar. Also, this webinar will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Not all of the Q&A will be necessarily in included in that recording, however, so uh, we encourage you to stay with us today so that you get the maximum value out of this event. Uh, lastly, this and other webinars will eventually be released in audio form on our podcast. Just search Charge Forward, all one word, with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts. Okay, and with that, I'm going to get to the, the dumb question section. Uh, for those of you new to um, these webinars, this webinar series, I, I like to begin them by asking a dumb question. I started doing this because uh, I realized that I had the opportunity to speak to different experts in, in uh, different areas of the financial and uh, fintech in industry. And um, I always had questions that I was kind of afraid to ask. So uh, just to sort of force myself to be honest about things that I don't know so that I get the benefit out of this webinar as well, I've uh, decided I'm going to start every webinar asking a dumb question. Kim, do you mind? Because um, I got a dumb one. I, I really do today. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Happy to help. Okay. Um, so for for years, you know, when I try to think of a dumb question, I typically the first thing I do is I go to uh, um, the the partner's website and um, and you know, something sort of jumped out at me. And so it's going to be a real simple question because you had a lot of information about level three processing. And I started reading it, and my brain started hurting. So so maybe you can explain to me a little bit clearer than than I was able to discern on my own. What what is level three processing, and um, sure. what what type of merchant should consider it? Okay, so level three processing is all transactions um, that you know, when, when a merchant makes a purchase, it's it's all a level of processing. Um, there's level one, level two, and level three. And level one requires the least amount of information to get carried over. So it's usually just a name, credit card number, um, zip code. Uh, level two has a higher tier, including level one. And then there's level three. Um, and level three processing requires a lot of detail that gets passed over. Um, and it's usually in regard to high value purchases. Um, so, you know, they want, in addition to, um, you know, the usual things you would pass over, it's, it's merchant ID, there's some tax information, there's the transaction amounts, um, there's a lot of information that goes over. And so that's really what level three processing is. It's sort of, um, you know, the most amount of information that gets sent over to the processing company so that they can legitimize the purchase, that it's not fraudulent, that it's, um, you know, real. And um, what's important about level three processing is because all of that information is sent, you actually pay less to process that transaction. If you process transactions at a level one and two, which is most people, um, just based on the way Visa works it, uh, then you're paying a slightly higher rate than if it were to go through at level three. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, level three is, is on your website, you said it's just for B2B. Is it, is that, is it, does that need to be the case or is it, is there an instance? It, where yeah, it's mostly, yeah, it's mostly business to business. 
Um, okay. We automate it so that all of that information goes over automatically. So the merchant doesn't have to do anything. It automatically goes over. And that's how we're actually able to then get it processed at a lower rate than what would be level three. So that's where our, our value add comes in there. Okay. And so, and so is this a, um, um, is this information that t you, you would collect like in a form or you just have a, like a, like maybe another step to the checkout process where you need to get that granular information or um, is it somehow automatically pulled? It's automatically pulled and it's done oh. on the back end um, of our solution. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm, I really just put together one slide and this is really the slide that I'm going to talk about today because um, when we talk about chargeback prevention, it's, it's, it can be a really complicated thing. And a lot of times I like to sort of tease this out, but the main thing that I talk about, that sort of punchline that I try to always get to is look, if, if you're, if you're talking about, about chargeback management, um, it's, it's effective to think about it in a three step process. Um, you know, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but it is it is safe to say that reason codes could, are super misleading. Um, and so if what you're doing is you're trying to um, either, you know, just prevent chargebacks or um, just dispute chargebacks, you're going to have some problems because uh, being able to identify why chargebacks are happening mm -hmm. is, is um, often a lot more difficult than it seems. Um, so you end up, for example, disputing chargebacks that are legitimate fraud, and you end up accepting chargebacks that um, are actually cases of friendly fraud. And the only real way as you as a merchant can really get a handle on things so that what you're doing is you're you're winning a lot of chargebacks um, and you're reducing all of the sort of preventable chargebacks is to deal with it in three steps. Um, the first step is to prevent criminal fraud. To whatever degree that you have it, um, it's very important that you get criminal fraud under control as much as possible because not only does criminal fraud cost you, but it creates sort of an atmosphere where it's much harder to identify and deal with friendly fraud, right? So if you think about, you know, let's say half of your chargebacks come back and they have a fraud reason code, half of those are likely cases of friendly fraud or, you know, a family fraud or one of those other sort of soft frauds. Um, it might be somebody that forgot they made a purchase. It might be somebody that their wife or her husband made a purchase. Um, and those are all going to come through as fraud. So so if you have a big bucket of fraud, um, you're not able to, to effectively address those um, instances of friendly fraud. So that, that a lot of times, is, that's a lot of revenue that you have to forfeit in addition to the revenue that you're losing because of the criminal fraud. Um, so there's secondary benefits. We, we always recommend it if there's a criminal fraud problem before you even think about anything else, try to get that down to, um, you know, as close to zero as possible, but, uh, you know, a manageable number. Um, and it, there's lots of ways to do that. And we have webinars where we talk about some, some systems and things that you can implement. Um, the next thing that you need to do is merchant error. Um, <clears throat> so this is things that you're doing that are creating chargeback liabilities um, that, you, that you know, oftentimes you're not aware that you're doing. Um, and really it's hard to do when you're inside of an organization because a lot of times people inside your organization have never called your customer service line. People inside your organization have never actually made a purchase through the, you know, through the, through the website. They've never been a member of, you know, your, your SaaS product or, or whatever. So there's, it's very, there's, there's, it's very difficult to get impartial visibility into your systems from the, the merchant standpoint. Um, and so, you know, to whatever degree you can, you know, 
uh, audit your systems regularly from an external standpoint and uh, you know really look critically at all of the different sort of infrastructure that you have in place that is customer facing so that you can try to figure out look is there anything that I'm doing on a customer service line I mean there's I mean simple things like you know when we audit a company there's always a big list that we provide but we audit a company a lot of times you know there'll be phone systems where there's a loop in the phone system you know one of the one of the numbers was just put in wrong and so people will call and then they have a problem and then you know if they if they press one of the numbers they get stuck in a loop but you know a lot of that's something that people don't know until until they pretend that they're the customer until or until they have sort of a third party evaluate their system and the, the sort of punchline with this is that once you get those two down then what you have is the the, the rest of your chargebacks is friendly fraud um, and so you can confidently dispute you know uh, uh, close to all of your chargebacks unless you have something that you're, you're pretty confident is uh, uh, a criminal fraud and if you're if you're coming from that position where now the only thing that you need to do is deal with friendly fraud um, you know a, a representment strategy is a completely valid strategy um, eliminating friendly fraud altogether you know that can be a that can be a difficult thing to do and so it will really depend on you know what your liability is you know with fraud thresholds so that is to say if you have you know if, if you're if your chargeback ratio is such that your processor saying hey you need to get this this chargeback rate down um, then you know there's some additional steps that we can take and there's a, there's some really great tools that will help eliminate you know some of those low-hanging fruit instances of friendly fraud um, the things like you know I forgot um, making the purchase or I don't recognize a purchase because my husband made it those type of instances um, there's some tools that that are really good and you know if, if you want reach out to me and I can kind of kind of talk to you about those um, offline but um, but it really it really matters if, if you have if you have healthy uh, merchant relationships and you have healthy customer relationships it's 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 uh, perfectly valid to just have a dispute strategy um, so that you recover the maximum amount of revenue and that's you know and that's usually for our customers that's sort of where we step in um, you know we we advocate generally a dispute um, uh, process uh, along with um, you know, auditing their systems to make sure that they're not doing anything that, that's contributing to chargebacks and definitely making sure that they don't have any sort of unforeseen criminal fraud um, in their system. Uh, so that's basically it. That's that's my whole pitch. So that from, from a chargeback prevention standpoint, that's sort of why I think it's important that you prevent chargebacks. Um, if you think about chargebacks as all being the same thing and I'm just, I, I get 100 chargebacks last month, I want to try to get, you know, 80 chargebacks this month and you don't really break it out and sort of a sort of address each issue um, separately then you, you know you're, you're, you're probably going to have continuing issues because that's just not the way that um, that we recommend sort of thinking about things but with that I'm going to go hand this over to Kim here Kim let me give you a mouse control okay you should be good to go all right. Yes, I can see the little mouse icon. All right. So good afternoon, everyone. Thanks again for joining uh, today. You know, as promised, we're going to provide an overview of the connection between payments and chargebacks. We'll dig in on a few specifics and hopefully you walk away with information you can use to reduce chargebacks and the costs associated with them. So let's start with everyone's favorite topic, the pandemic. 
we're nearly a year in and the impact continues to ripple across retail and other verticals. Last March, everyone was asked to help flatten the curve, which meant a near total shutdown of non-essential businesses. Many merchants had to quickly pivot. Some had to fast track their planned digital transformations. Others had to change their business model entirely. Um, after all, if you can't be open in person, you can be open online. What many business owners learned quickly is there are several differences between processing an in-store transaction and processing an online transaction. First, there are different interchange rates for card present and card not present transactions. Merchant acquirers consider all online transactions as riskier than not. So for instance, even prior to the pandemic, online subscriptions were considered high risk as a customer can cancel or stop their payment at any point. Once the pandemic hit, the acquirers expanded their list of businesses they considered to be too volatile and therefore wouldn't boredom and put further parameters in place for the ones they would. Next, there's different structures to payment solution provider rates. Most are familiar with the bundled rate, 2.9% and 30 cents a transaction. However, there are payment providers that work off a cost plus model, meaning you pay the interchange rate and then usually a few cents and basis points per transaction. The former is definitely convenient, but it can lead you to paying more than necessary. The latter is more transparent and you'll know exactly what you're paying for. And the less you pay to process a transaction, the more you have to combat chargebacks, to put toward your business, to put toward other initiatives. Third, there's a greater chance of fraud, both friendly and not at all friendly in the card not present space. Consider with an online transaction, the person behind the online payment can be anyone or no one. So out of the gate, your business is paying more to process transactions online than in store, you're a target for fraud, but you're a merchant trying to survive in a pandemic. You've changed course adopted new methods, and you're feeling pretty good about things as everyone moves to online as a way to cope and eat and entertain themselves. It's awesome. We've, we've done it. In a May article for Payments Journal, Chargeback 911 co-founder and COO Monica Eaton Cardone reported the company had tracked an increase in overall chargebacks of about 23%. She went on to say that digital content saw a 75% surge in transaction volume from March, which was then undercut by a 31% increase in chargebacks. So why all the chargebacks? Well, in some cases, the customer had no way to return the item due to stay in place orders. They just they couldn't get to the post office. They couldn't get back to the store. It just wasn't feasible. Others, they got impatient 
regarding the delivery. Um, but I think we all sort of like ran to Amazon and then quickly realized they couldn't fulfill it, right? Um, and so people went online and they initiated chargebacks. Where in other cases, people made the purchases and it was for items or subscriptions, and then they lost their jobs and they had no way to pay for them. So they contested the charges. Then in too many instances, fraudsters had a field day. So what spurred this? Opportunity. With stay-in-place orders, most of the world moved online and fraudsters took advantage of a prime situation. The ability to mask much of their activity in the onslaught of online purchases. However, many merchants were able to limit or reduce risk by working with their solution providers to flag, well, to flag red flags. Um, for instance, we had a customer whose average number of transactions quadrupled. Uh, we knew something was off immediately. So we ran a report and saw an influx of small charges over the course of a very short time period. We then did a further data analysis and we identified a set of bin ranges that were associated with credit cards that originated in a specific country within South America. Now, there's no way that that should have been happening given this particular customer and what their product was. So we called our customer and we gave them the information so they could decide if they wanted us to block the bin numbers. And that's, it's important because if you block a bin number, you know, like Jared said, then that means sometimes the good payments are going to get blocked as well as the bad. So, you know, you kind of have to really decide what you want to do. Our customer took a look and said, nope, uh, we would like you to block the numbers. So we did. And we saw the number of transactions return to their normal rate. So often our customers ask us what they can do to protect themselves prior to the payment going through. Anytime you're attempting to combat fraud, the more information, the better. Um, that goes for you, that goes for your customer. To start, take a look at your payment page. What data are you asking for from the buyer? Sometimes merchants keep the data collection to a minimum, and it's understandable. You want to engage the customer and, and not overwhelm them because you don't want card abandonment. It's, under, it's, it's completely understandable, but it's also where risk versus reward comes in. As merchants, you have to decide what amount of fraud you're willing to risk in order to make a sale. So at a minimum, you should collect the cardholder's name, credit card number, expiration date, card verification value, billing address, and zip code. Use CAPTCHA to combat the bots. On the back end, you should be able to run a report that includes all of this information, as well as the IP address, the transaction amount, authorization code, and confirmation number. This way, if you get a retrieval or soft chargeback request from the credit card company for more details, you're well prepared, you have it, 
you have the detail that they need. Next, think about what the customer will see when the charge goes through. Better yet, for the next minutes, few minutes, I'd like you to forget you're a merchant. Just forget it. And instead, think of situations you've come across as a customer. Because a lot of times we forget we're customers every day. So let's say you're on Facebook and you see an ad for a funny t-shirt from Teas R Us. You click through and you make the purchase. A few days later, you get your credit card bill and there's a charge from Boutique Limited. Well, uh, it doesn't ring a bell. There's no other info. So you call the credit card company and let them know there's a questionable charge. Now, had the charge looked something like this, it's likely you'd have remembered you made the purchase. This, the company name, phone number, city, state, is what's known as a descriptor. A descriptor, it's the information that goes along with the transaction amount on the customer's credit card statement. Now there's three types of descriptors, soft, static, which is sometimes known as hard, and dynamic. Soft descriptors are what show up on the credit card statement immediately after the bank has approved the charge. It's a temporary note that appears until the transaction is final. If you've checked your you know, savings account or checking account on your mobile app, you'll see you know, store pending. That is a soft descriptor. Static descriptors or hard descriptors replace the soft descriptors on the statement. So when you get that statement, whatever was there will be replaced by the static descriptor. Now, a dynamic descriptor is a custom descriptor you're able to configure for each transaction as it's created dynamically by an API, which I'm guessing is how Somebody very clever called it a dynamic descriptor. What you wanna do is work with your processor to determine what descriptors they support. Keep in mind, whether you use a static or a dynamic descriptor, the most important thing is to make it as easy as possible for the customer to look at the charge information on their statement and say, I remember making that purchase. So, We've talked bin ranges, data collection, and descriptors as far as how you can use payments to reduce chargebacks. There are some other best practices you can implement to mitigate risk. Be upfront with your customers about your terms and conditions and your return policy. Make it easy for them to find that information. They should not have to dig through pages and menus to find a customer service number or support email on your site. Also, consider online chat. It's a great way to interact one-on-one -on -one with your customer. Loyalty is important no matter what industry you are in. Over time, you want to build a relationship with your customer. If they feel they can connect with you and trust you, you'll be the first call they make if there's an issue. If you have a subscription company, you wanna work with a provider that makes it easy for your customers to manage their subscriptions, allowing them to skip a week 
or change their delivery date makes a world of difference. You don't want them canceling the subscription if you can just have them pause it. It's much cheaper to have them unpause it than it is to go back and get them. Now, when it comes to making a purchase, customers want options. So you definitely need to offer different payment methods. And if it's a recurring service, you wanna make sure the customer can keep multiple cards on file and switch between them. Digital wallets such as Apple Pay are also more prevalent. And what's great about them is they offer an added layer of security due to their encryption methods. So transparency, loyalty, manageability, flexibility. Those four things are critical to mitigating risk. So no matter what business you're in, optimizing payments protects it from unwanted activity, such as declines, chargebacks, and fraud. It also improves the customer experience and a great customer experience means they're more likely to come back. Uh, you've got more opportunity to engage with them. That engagement in and of itself will go a long way to eliminating disputes. That wraps up uh, the presentation of portion of today's webinar. And Jared, I think we're ready for some questions. All right, very good. Thank you so much. Okay, um, here's Kim's information. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the first question that somebody asked is, um, is 3D Secure 2.0 a good chargeback solution? Um, I have a few questions for for this uh, this person asked the the question, but but Kim, what are your first thoughts on that? Yeah, I yes, I mean just high level yes it's a it's a good thing to have in place it's an extra layer of security for merchants um it ensures that you're accepting card payments only from legitimate customers and what 3d secure does is it shifts the liability for the chargeback so now instead of the merchant being responsible for the chargeback the bank is responsible for the chargeback yeah, I, th I think I agree with that. I think the only caveat I would say there is that I wouldn't call it a chargeback solution, but it, but it's definitely um, a chargeback uh, tool. It's a chargeback weapon. Right, exactly. It's a, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, a not, it's, tool. it's not going to fix everything. Um, there yeah. are certainly folks that have ways around it, but, you know, especially if you deal with high value transactions, um, yeah. 3D Secure is good. Like when you, you see it a lot with like concert tickets or airline tickets, it's they want to make sure the card holder is the card holder. Yeah, and and I think that if if I'm not mistaken, a 3D Secure is a double opt-in type of thing, so it's not. I don't think it's something you need to worry about it adding uh, undue friction to your checkout process unless the customer has already sort of opted in and is used to using the um, the added sort of security. Correct. It really is fairly frictionless. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all of the above. We, you know, we always recommend, you know, do all of the basic things. Um, exactly. Um, <clears throat> what's the best way to avoid chargebacks? Um, so this kind of goes back to my my previous thought, which is, you know, I, I worry that people oversimplify the problem too much. 
Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so I'm going to give you two answers. So if, if what you want to do is just reduce the number of chargebacks that you have. So the, your problem is, um, char, you know, your chargeback rate is too high. So really what you're trying to do before everything else is just reel that in. Um, because, you know, as everybody knows, or as you, as you should know, um, you know, if you, if you have too high a chargeback rate, the consequences of that um, aren't impacted by whether or not you have those uh, uh, chargebacks overturned. Um, so if you have chargebacks, if they're filed to begin with, and, and too many are being filed, even if you're effective at disputing it, even if you're, the, you know, um, being, um, uh, you know, they're, they're all instances of friendly fraud and you can prove it, um, you, you still have some liability and you're still going to need to, um, you know, rein that sort of um, chargeback rate in. And uh, if, if that's what you're, if that's your primary goal, then um, the, the tools are called chargeback alerts. Um, they're real effective and what they what they allow you to do is they allow you to um, it sort of like circumvents the chargeback process and what happens somebody goes to their bank they say I didn't make this charge or what, whatever they tell the, um, the customer service agent um, and then uh, the customer service agent will instead of you know going through the uh, the schemes they'll sort of go around the schemes and go directly to you and say hey this customer is uh, requesting a refund and then um, as long as you agree that you're going to refund that customer yourself um, you can avoid the chargeback um, now you do need to refund the customer and there is sort of a fees for that sort of that alert notification um, so it's not it's not a revenue positive thing but it, it does reduce the number of chargebacks which can definitely be re revenue positive depending on how they're impacting your business um, another one that isn't quite as um, you know they don't ha you don't have to refund is um, um, they, they're they're actually by the schemes and uh, what you can do is you can actually respond with additional information so somebody says this is just a generic example but somebody will contact their bank and say I don't recognize a charge um, the what what it enables the uh, the person at the um, issuing bank to do is ping your you, um, you know, and then immediately get additional information about the transaction. And there's, I don't know, I think a hundred or there's a, there's a bunch of different um, data points that we can send back. And essentially what we would do is we'd say, okay, well, you know, on this date, you, you know, the customer bought yellow shoes or so, you know, whatever, you know, whatever kind of uh, uh, confirming data we can send back. And what that does is it, it prevents all of those, or it helps prevent a lot of those um, instances of, you know, friendly fraud that were kind of unintentional or, um, you know, were sort of uh, spouse or, um, um, you know, child or, or whatever. Uh, so, so that's that's a good tool, and it doesn't have a, um, a refund requirement. So it's it's a, it's a very viable option. Um, now the other the other end the other way to answer that is that what's the best way to avoid chargebacks, and that's just to be transparent about when you're going to bill and what they're going to receive when you bill them. Um, I know that sounds sort of rudimentary, but it's it's really at the end of the day that's that's what we see a lot of. Um, you know, somebody overselling something. Uh, you know, not not doing a great job of describing the product um, when you know that the the person's going to receive, or you know, not letting somebody know that the, that they're going to be billed again, or not you know reminding them um, that their billing uh, is going to happen. Uh, those those type of things. If if you're transparent, um, you're going to have fewer chargebacks. Um, the actual instance of a malicious customer 
who goes out and goes on a shopping spree and then decides that they're going to just file chargebacks on everything is actually that's a that's a very small subset of even friendly fraud. Um, it's usually that they're dissatisfied in some way and it's just easier to file a chargeback than it is to go through you know, contacting you or, um, you know, for whatever reason, they think that they're not going to get a fair shake from you. Um, so that, 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 those would be my two answers there. Uh, next question is, what's the best signals to monitor to predict chargebacks? Kim, you said you had some ideas on this, and I'm, I'm curious um, what, what you think. Yeah, so we kind of hit upon it earlier in the presentation. So again, if you are seeing a tremendous amount of charges come in in a very short amount of time, um, it's likely a carding attack. And what they're doing is they're putting those transactions through to see if the stolen credit card they have, um, if it can get it through the system because then they go and they take it and they use it elsewhere, right? So anything that's suddenly um, a lot, um, if you normally, uh, have a transaction amount that averages $45, let's say, um, and suddenly you're getting charges that come in that are, you know, $1.99 or $2 or $5, and it's significantly below the price point of anything you offer, um, something's happening. Um, and so you're, you're getting, you know, um, an attack, and what's going to happen is then, you know, you're going to get the chargebacks. So those are some of the things I, you know, it's important, I think, if you, like we were saying before, is, you know, the more information um, you can provide to your customer, the better. So if you see that um, uh, they're skipping areas on the form, um, they're not providing the zip code because for whatever reason you haven't made it um, mandatory, um, and you see a certain set of charges come through that are all missing the zip code. Um, that's a likelihood that they're coming in because they don't have to provide it. Um, and so it's easier for them to get the charge through. And I think, you know, again, it's really a matter of working with your processors and organizations like Chargebacks 911 um, that, you know, they can really sort of take a look at your transaction history. Um, pull your bank statements, take a look, see if there's been any weird activity. Um, see if it's cyclical, uh, you know, because that in and of itself can help you sort of see like, well, did I have a sudden surge above the average? Um, is the value higher? Uh, all of those, all of those things go into helping predict it. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think this is an interesting question because when we think about chargebacks, chargebacks, you know, we're, we're generally focused on friendly fraud. And so predicting friendly fraud is, I mean, that's sort of why, you know, it's, it's a problem that's difficult to solve because it's really doesn't, there's not, you know, with criminal fraud, there's all kinds of things, you know, different billing, different shipping, you know, um, yep. there's, a, there's a lot of different things that, you, a lot of different rules that you can create to sort of catch suspicious behavior. But a lot of times friendly fraud is, I mean, it, like I said, it's not premeditated. And even if it is premeditated, it's not usually done on you know in an organized sort of wholesale way right it might be that somebody wanted to try to see if they could get some shoes or something for free it could be the most malicious version but it's usually not a sustained attack i mean it's probably the person's credit card that they use for legitimate purchases so um yeah a, a lot of those um to, to predict friendly fraud is almost impossible 
Um, <clears throat> best supporting documentation to assist in disputing chargebacks. So, so th this is one of those questions, and I always, I, I, I don't want to go too, too much on a rant here, but I, you know, I think, I think in general, um, the idea that people have when they're dealing with chargebacks is, um, <clears throat> okay, so what, what do I need? Usually, I'll, I'll give you another example of a question that sort of makes me feel this way: is that somebody will say, "Well, what do I put in my terms of service that will enable me to prevent chargebacks?" You know, it's like, "Well, what is the one piece of, you know, what do I put in there? What's the secret thing that I put in there?" So there really is that. There's not an answer like that. That's, I mean, it really depends on every single situation. What, what the backstory is. I mean, right. Um, you you kind of need to compile uh, the information that you need to compile based on what the reason code is and then based on also what you know about the history of the relationship with that specific consumer. So, um, <clears throat> but but I'll tell you the, the thing that uh, a lot of people overlook is your customer service department. Um, if you have, if, you're, if your customer service department is on the ball, you're answering the phone and, um, you know, you, you have... Um, um, email tickets or however you, you're you're doing a lot of times the um you know some some issues that may not be issues um you know if they contact you and sort of complain about something and you know as long it provided that you handled that call responsibly and you handled and you documented everything um then that those that documentation is is very strong because it especially if what they're saying is they don't recognize the charge or they never received it or what you know whatever whatever their story is um now another thing too, um, this isn't you know to help you win chargebacks, but something that I think is important that people remember is that your customer is going to see the 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 case that you put together. Um, so you know it's one of the reasons why we don't do a full automated solution because uh, you know we need to make sure that there's some human eyes on stuff because what will happen is if you know even if even if you had just you could just build cases like you're, you're the best um, you know and you had all these secret tricks and stuff. Uh, you know, th those cases are going to go, your customer's going to get it. They're going to be like, oh, I can't believe I, you know, I can't believe that they won this. Um, you know, and if there's a mistake in there or if there's something in there that aggravates them, then they're just going to call their bank and complain and you're going to get a second charge back. And those are pretty much, I mean, you, you sort of have to usually eat those um, unless they're really high ticket and you, and you want to kind of roll the dice and sort of take it at pre-arbitration. But, um, but generally, uh, you, you're, you're not going to want to do that. So. I guess those are my two pieces of advice. Uh, um, you know, be careful what you put in there. Keep in mind that the customer is going to see it, and um, you know, um, make it match whatever the situation is, and uh, make sure your customer service is uh, documenting um, all interactions with your customer. Uh, how, how do chargebacks affect your account? I think we, we this was asked slightly different way, but we're going to interpret this as being um, your sort of merchant account um, or your you know, payments account. So, at, so at Payway, how does uh, how do how do chargebacks impact your account, Ken? Um, so we, yeah, we actually saw a couple of versions of this this question come in. So it's it's clear everyone's uh, mind. Um, it, you know, I think what everyone sort of forgets is when you open a merchant account, you're basically opening a line of credit, and you know, just like anything else, um, there's underwriters, um, there's reviewers, um, and they look. And, you know, if your business is getting a significant amount of chargebacks, they're going to come back and say, we've decided that we're going to put a reserve in place. Um, so they'll just take um, a portion of your sales 
and put it in reserve. Um, and they use that as their insurance policy against having to um, fight these chargebacks. Uh, you know, chargebacks can impact your business's credit, um, your credibility, um, and it can make it harder to get um, a lower interchange rate. So a lot of times we have customers that want to switch from the bundled pricing over to cost plus, and they come to us and we go to our processors, but because of the history of chargebacks, uh, we're not really able to do a significant amount um, more for them from a, a rate perspective, simply because they're now high risk. And once you're high risk, it's it's just like getting a you know a nick on your credit account from Experian. Um, depending on it, it can take you know 30 days to a few years to to come off. So I think that's you know one of the reasons why it's so important that you're knowledgeable about your payments, you're understanding the ecosystem, you understand how the chargebacks work, how you can combat the chargebacks, because you want to have as few as possible, because then your rating with the processors um, goes up. It's just like having um, a credit number. Okay, and if a credit card sale gets disputed as fraud, what does the merchant have to present in order not to lose the funds? We're getting pretty far into the hour here, so. Um, <clears throat> okay, this last question is, I'll just sort of deal with this one just so we round this out. Um, how does charge? How do chargebacks work in cryptocurrency account? Um, okay, so there's, <laughs> again, there's two ways that I can interpret this question. The first one is, how do chargebacks work with transactions where somebody pays in cryptocurrency. Um, to my knowledge, there is not a, a out-of-the-box cryptocurrency that has a chargeback mechanism in it. Um, I think with smart contracts and stuff, you can have sort of something similar to a chargeback mechanism, um, but I actually, I'm not an expert. So, but, but you know, if, if, you, if, if you buy something with cryptocurrency, you can't file a dispute. And if you accept payments in cryptocurrency, your customers can't file a dispute. Um, and, you know, and like I said, unless there's a layer, um, some intermediary there. Um, so I guess it probably depends on how you're accepting uh, cryptocurrency. Um, but I think maybe this person is asking about, um, you know, if you have a cryptocurrency account and you buy cryptocurrency in the account, can you file a chargeback? Um, <laughs> so I know that most exchanges even I would say a lot of stock exchanges are the same way, don't allow you to use credit cards. Um, I, usually they wanna have like a connection to your bank account. Some of them will use credit cards, but um, I would be willing to bet that if you try to dispute um, a charge for where you acquired cryptocurrency, I'm pretty sure that's a very easy to document. I, I would I would be surprised if your issuing bank allowed you to dispute that unless you really called them up with a song and a dance. Um, so either way you answer that question, I'll, I'll give you both of my thoughts there. Um, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Let, let's go all the way back to the beginning here because I, I know you had your contact information. I'm gonna put both of ours up there. One of these days, I'm going to remember to put our information at the end. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know. All right, there we go. So if anybody has any questions, there's uh, my contact information as well as uh, Kim's contact information. Feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn or 
you know, kind of stay in touch. Uh, we appreciate you uh, joining us today. Um, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. It was, it was a great, great presentation and uh, hopefully everyone learned a lot and yeah, definitely reach out to us if you have questions.